Our scripture this morning is a parable found only in the Gospel of Luke. It is a story I'm sure is very familiar to many of you. It's sometimes labeled the Good Samaritan parable. And even though Good and Samaritan don't even appear together anywhere in the scripture. And in other places, you'll find it labeled with the heading, Who is my neighbor? It is sometimes called narrative and sometimes an example story. By either title or either category, it remains a very provocative tale. As we have heard, the parable encompasses several characters. A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, robbers who rob and beat him and leave him for dead, and a priest and a Levite and, of course, a Samaritan. At the time of the first church, the listeners of this parable would have most likely identified with this victim. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem and back was as well-traveled as Highway 101. It was the path that all the Jews would use when traveling from regions around the Sea of Galilee as they journeyed to Jerusalem for all the high holy days. Caravans would have traveled the same route as they brought exotic spices and goods from the east. It was even the path that Mary and Joseph would have traveled on their way to Bethlehem. The first leg for a traveler from the north might have begun at the top of the Jordan River Valley, uh, a path known as the Highway of Galilee, They would have traveled south down the valley until they reached a place called the Adam Bridge. There they would have crossed to the east side of the Jordan. From there they would travel south to the Allenby Bridge at the bottom of the valley and then cross back over west and into Jericho. Now, the reason they crossed and traveled the east side of the Jordan Valley was because they needed to avoid traveling through Samaria. Samaria, the country that lay on the west bank of the Jordan, reaching out to the Mediterranean Sea. Samaria, the neighbor south of Galilee. Samaria, the neighbor north of Judea. Those people were to be avoided. You know those people. They had an imperfect adherence to Jewish law, and who could possibly forget their pagan ancestry? You know, Luke even set up his own racial tensions for this parable back in chapter 9, verses 51 through 55. This is what he wrote. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, meaning Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, and on their way they entered a village of Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem, meaning he was a Jew. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. 
Now, the leg of the journey back and forth between Jericho and Jerusalem was treacherous. The road is rocky, steep, and very, very windy. From Jerusalem to Jericho, some 20 miles or so, the elevation drops from 2,300 feet above sea level down to 1,300 feet below sea level. It was a perfect location for ambushes and hijackings, and folks rarely, rarely traveled it alone. Even as late as the 1930s, travelers would pay local sheiks for guaranteed safe passage. The traveler in our story did not have, have such luck. Who knows why he ventured along alone this treacherous path, but he did, and he fell victim to these thieves. Now, as he lay there, too injured to move, a priest hastens by, avoiding him. Undoubtedly fearing the man was dead and remembering the law, the law as documented in Numbers 19.11, from which he was taught that if he touched a corpse, he would be unclean for seven days. Perhaps he decided he could not afford to lose his turn um, at the temple. He decided he couldn't risk it. Our next character, the Levite, may have had a reason of fear. It was known that thieves often faked injury so that the travelers would stop to assist. They would be ambushed by the rest of the gang. He may have feared the same fate for himself. But lastly, here comes the Samaritan. The first listeners of this parable had yet to hear or adhere the adjective good to him. Upon hearing that the next traveler was a Samaritan, they might have even echoed subtle moans and automatically thought, oh no, here comes another villain. Instead, as Jesus always does with his teaching, their expectation was flipped right on its head. In our current day, there are a couple of videos out on YouTube uh, called Social Experiments, one from France and one locally done in the United States. Uh, we're going to actually, at coffee time, have those available for you to see, but let me describe them to you. Uh, in France, they uh, had a, a young man dress up in pretty shabby clothes, um, was walking down a very, very busy street. He coughed a few times and he collapses onto the ground. Can you guess what happened? People for 15 minutes continued to walk by him as he cried, help, help. Now the contrast to that experiment was a young man again, but this time dressed in a business suit, who again collapsed on this busy street. How long do you think it took for anyone to come to his side? Literally, before he could almost hit the ground totally, there were five or six people stopping to help him. Same issue with the other <clears throat> experiment, a homeless person with a crutch and a backpack who falls and literally falls and, on one case, rolls down a small hill as people walk by and watch it happen. 
Again, a businessman uh, with a crutch, the same thing, could barely um, have to wait 10 seconds before someone was at his side helping him get up, helping pick up his items. So what prevents folks from stopping and helping homeless people? Why do they so easily rush in to help the businessman? The reason I'm so drawn to this parable and to this, certain, uh, this current social experiment is because I live it every single day in my ministry. My ministry is to over 600 homeless people every year in Napa County. A hundred or so of them are children, some living in cars before we take them in. Anyone want to guess what the name of my family shelter is? Samaritan, yes, thank you. Although I lead memorial services for the ones we lose each year, I do not conduct normal Sunday morning services for them. Instead, my ministry is to bandage the wounds of their minds and their bodies and their souls and to make sure that they have a place to come home to each night. I walk among them and check on them as they lay in the grass or on the sidewalk. I hold their hands as they cry in pain at their circumstances. And of course, I pray with them. I'm called to do this work. But what creates this divide between the homeless and others? What evokes this sin of racism, this inability for us to follow the number one commandment in our Christian faith, loving our God with all our heart and our soul and our strength and our minds and our neighbors as ourselves? You know what I think it is? I think it is fear. And I think it's judgment, my friends. Just like the Levite and the priest, they and we have what we deem either legitimate or instinctive reasons for not stopping. We judge that person or those people and deem them unworthy of our time and effort. A neighbor of the Methodist Church in Napa where the Hope Center is located, that's my day community center, Uh, for the hopeless, uh, homeless, excuse me, and sometimes hopeless. That person uh, who resides across the street told a member of that church that the homeless, my congregation, should be euthanized. It seems that there is no space in his being for love or neighbor, This gentleman has some legitimate issues living so close to where the homeless go for the day to have a cup of coffee or watch the news or eat at the Salvation Army or eat uh, an early dinner at the Presbyterian Church's table. But what would evoke such a response? We allow the circumstances we face to be filtered through what I call the lower part of our brain, where we store judgment, fear, and even erroneous data that evokes fear and judgment. You know, things like 
The mentally ill are all uncontrollable and they freak out and they hurt people. Thank you, horror movies and criminal TV shows. Or homeless people are all bums and drug addicts or alcoholics and should just get a job. They should say that to me and to my ever-increasing elderly population facing evictions from their care homes and retirement centers because rents now are beginning to exceed their fixed incomes. I don't know if the news of my 97-year-old man made it to Marin County, but I most recently housed one of those who was evicted from his care home. And what about the mom with the two kids who are fleeing domestic violence, who have been living in their car for a week, eating McDonald's dollar menu, and sometimes if the homeless families are in cars during school year, at least the children get a school lunch. What about them? Instead of filtering what we see through the lower part of our brains, we should be doing, what we should be doing is filtering our circumstances through our souls as Christians, our, as kingdom come people. You know, I know how hard it is to be Jesus, how to walk in his shoes. You know, when I think about it, I think of the story of this delightful, what I call kingdom come mom. She was a single parent with two small boys, six and four, Bobby and Jimmy, and she worked sometimes double shifts to keep food and a roof over their heads. And she hated that she hardly ever got to see them because they were in daycare or with babysitters or with relatives. But she always relished her weekend mornings because that's when her and the boys would have their special ritual of breakfast together. So this one um, Saturday morning, she is cooking those infamous pancakes where you make them look like all kinds of weird things. Uh, the boys would get to call out what they wanted, and she'd try to duplicate it in the, in the frying pan. But she got down at the end of the batter, and she realized she only had enough for one more pancake. And she thought, what better time to teach the boys a lesson? Let me give it a try. And so she said, boys... You know what? If Jesus was here, he'd give this last pancake to his brother. There was silence for quite a while, and Bobby Six turns to Jimmy Four and says, Jimmy, you be Jesus. <laughs> yes, it's hard. It's hard to be Jesus. You know, in 2002, I decided I, I wanted to buy a truck. I had been living in my home for a while, and, you know, if you live in a house, it's, it's sometimes uh, important um, to have a truck. And, gosh, you make so many friends when you have a truck. Anyway, so um, I, I had looked at the GMCs, and um, um, I liked bl the blue one. And so as soon as I made that decision, a really weird thing happened. I saw every blue truck in Napa, every single one. And the same thing happened just the last year when I decided to downscale to a smaller car and had decided to buy a Kia Soul. And sure enough, I saw every single Kia Soul in every driveway and every parking lot that there, were, there was. Now, 
I often think this happens, and, and, and I knew in reality that there wasn't su suddenly a surge of, of the number of people, you know, driving blue trucks or Kia Souls. Not, not everyone had run out and bought a car, just like mine, at the same time I did. Instead, I had just become more conscious and more aware of the cars like mine, and I was filtering cars and trucks through a different lens. You know what, friends? I think that this is what Jesus is asking us to do. Filter and respond to what you see as people who pray, and we will in just a moment, thy kingdom come. We pray and beg that every Sunday and at other special times in our Christian life. We are commanded to love our God and our neighbors as ourselves. Now, each society we know draws boundaries and barriers. By all means, we should evaluate our situation for safety. But there's always more we can do than we often allow ourselves to do. In June, I attended a presentation by, put on by the Napa County Mental Health Group. It was a talk with a retired CHP officer that used to patrol the Golden Gate Bridge. He talked about his job and how he had talked hundreds of people down from jumping. But it was the next young man that was so intriguing. He was actually a survivor of a jump from the Golden Gate Bridge. He told his story of waking up that morning um, with the plan to jump from the bridge. He went to school. He was attending City College and dropped the last class he was taking. He rode uh, the Muni bus to the bridge. And when he first walked onto the span, this uh, young woman stopped him. But all she wanted was to have him take her picture. Uh, on the bridge. A short time later, he was in midair, falling, falling to what he thought was his death. And by the way, he shared that as soon as his hands left the railing, he immediately realized he didn't want to die. Now, the most just fascinating thing for me and educational thing was what he shared that night is that he believes that if the school folks or anyone on that bus or that tourist who asked for the picture had asked any of the following questions, he would not have jumped. Here are the really, really hard questions. Are you all right? Do you need help? Is there anything I can do? I don't know if you've heard of Sister Simone Campbell. She's the nun that most recently was quoted as calling the Pope, Pope Frank. I, I love her irreverence. Anyway, she has some amazing credentials. She's uh, led the Nuns on the Bus Project. They've been traveling around the U.S. with the purpose of highlighting social justice issue, issues in our country. In her speech to the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly this year, 
she, when I say called out the faith community, as she so often does, she declared that walking towards trouble is a sign of people of faith. Walking towards trouble. It makes me think of the people stopping on the roads maybe this morning in Africa, in Sierra Leone, wondering if that person on the side of the road has Ebola. Caution must be observed, but these kingdom come folks do not deserve the criticism that some are voicing about them working with the folks that are struck struck with this uh, awful disease. For Christians, we should walk in the sandals of Jesus inside his ministry, inside, deep inside his ministry of love. After all, that was what his ministry was all about. We are not meant to be martyrs, but we must filter our actions not through judgment and fear, but through the love and grace as shown to us by Christ. Love does not allow us to limit our definition of neighbor. Jesus was a barrier buster, and guess what his weapon was? His weapon was love. This parable does not allow us to be passive. We all have different levels of ability. There is always something that can be done. We are to do something. It may not be packing somebody into your car and taking them to the Marriott, but as kingdom come people, we are to do something to help. I leave you this morning with looking through the lens of the late Reverend Dr. Luther, Martin Luther King, who on um, commenting on this parable said this, The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? May we all go and be likewise. May we all go and do likewise. Amen.